Welcome to the Legend Conversations podcast series, a new listening and gathering experience. This interview with Bun B was recorded live on October 2nd, 2019 in Chicago, Illinois at Soho House. This interview was hosted by me, Alexander Fruchter. Thank you for listening. Hello. Hello, everybody. Hello, Soho House. It's, uh, it's good to see everyone here tonight. I see a lot of familiar faces. I see a lot of new faces. Uh, I see a lot of people that probably don't know me at all. So I'm going to introduce myself. I'm Alexander Fruchter. Some of you may know me as... Uh, thank you. I don't know who that was, but thank you very much. Um, but no, I'm a, I'm a DJ. Some of you may know me as DJ RTC. I've been a journalist for a long time, and I run a little indie hip-hop label here called Closed Sessions, and we put on um, this legend conversation. It's a series that we started last year uh, with the mission to bring people that have had an undeniable impact and contribution to hip-hop music and culture to Soul House and celebrate the career, talk with them uh, through their journey. The last, series, the last session we had was with Raekwon from Wu-Tang Clan and set a, a high bar. So when we were thinking of who to bring next, one name kept coming up over and over again in all our uh, brainstorming sessions, and that name is Bun B. Coming from the small town of Port Arthur, Texas, Bun B is one half of the iconic group UGK. Along with his partner, Pimp C, Bun and UGK sent trends for hip hop and music culture at large. They introduced a production style that blended soul, funk, reggae samples with country twang and flavor, which they layered with their own unique blend of rhymes centered around narrative street stories and raunchy sex raps that could make even two live crew blush. Uh, over the span of his 25-year career, Bun B has been part of many records that have become classic pieces of hip-hop's catalog, stretching all the way back to Pocket Full of Stones, through records like Chopping Blades, Front Back, Side to Side, collaborations such as Big Pimpin' with Jay-Z, and the wedding staple, International Players Anthem. I know uh, my wife can attest that that song was triple-checked in our DJ's Must playlist uh, at our wedding where many veterans closed themselves off and failed to embrace new movements and technologies, Bun did the opposite and became a leader and role model for many in and out of hip hop culture. When I was just starting out uh, with my website and the label, Bun was one of the first big artists to embrace us as well as many of my peers in the Chicago hip hop scene and the nationwide. Stretching beyond just music, Bun is an advocate for what is right, a published author, college professor, and ambassador for Houston-based sports teams and businesses, and he can still really fucking rap, as evidenced on his uh, most recent releases, Trill Static and Return of the Trill. So, with that out of the way, and before I bring him out though, I do want to remind everybody, please make sure your phone is on silent, please refrain from taking any photo, photo or video during the talk. Now that that's out of the way, though, it's my esteemed honor to introduce, and I want to give a big Chicago welcome for Bun B. Let's clap it up. What's up, man? What are you drinking? You know what, I'm drinking uh, an old-fashioned, more so for the, for the look. I don't know if you're a, a Ron Burgundy fan, but I feel like... Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I feel like this is the this is gonna help set the mood, the vibe. Okay. Should I have it old fashioned too? I think so. Do right you on. do you like uh, bourbon whiskey? Sure. I drink everything, so it doesn't really matter to me. Can can we get Bumby an old fashioned, please? This will be my first old fashioned. Oh shit! If you don't like it, it's not my fault. Yes, it is. But we'll, we'll, we'll. if this is like your new favorite drink, just remember where you where you had it. I will. I will. Um, Thanks for having me out. Damn man, Bum B. Wow. There's like so many places that we could start. I like to start these though with just your thoughts on Chicago. Are there any feelings like right when you get off the plane, you're in Chicago? Does memories rush back or the air feel a certain way? Uh, yeah. Well, we actually recorded a big part of Super Tight here in Chicago oh, at the Battery Studios. So one of the objectives that we had while we were signed to Jive Records, Jive Records owns Battery Studios. And we were like, we want to make sure that we try to record in every single studio that they own. <laughs> and uh, we just didn't realize how much we were being charged for recording at our record company's studio. We were under the idea that if we used the record company's studio, it would be free. Damn. And it wasn't. But Chicago was a really, really fun city to, to, to be in. We stayed here for like six weeks, and um, we enjoyed it, man. We really enjoyed Chicago. The weather was, weather was interesting because it was, um, was super hot. It was when um, Chicago had a heat wave, and maybe it might have been 94 or 95, yeah. and, um, which was surprising to me because I thought Chicago was cold. This is how young I was and new to the world. I just assumed that Chicago was always cold. And we came here and recorded in the summer, and it was extremely hot in Chicago. Man, it's hot and humid out here in the Which summer. Which is surprising, because I'm from the, where humidity was born, in uh, Houston, Texas. Like, that's all we know is being hot and sweating and having to take a shower every time you go outside. Um, I wanted to... It's, it's a good segue into the, the, the next question I wanted to, to talk to you about. I knew you were... You, Born in Houston, grew up a bit in Houston, then moved to um, Port, Ar Port Arthur, Texas. Yes. There's, a, there's a quote I read from you, Thank you that said, back in Port Arthur, there was no hip-hop scene. The scene was Pimp C's bedroom. Um, before we talk about how you and Pimp C found each other, I just wanted to ask you if you remember when you did discover hip-hop and um, what drew you to the music and what just what that first exposure was. Again, this is back in Texas and in the 80s. So. Yeah, so I was always a big fan of music in general. Like, I used to love to listen to music and try to memorize the words of certain songs. And I, I wasn't the best dancer in the world, but I would have moments where I'd be in the bedroom and listen to records. Like, I remember growing up, one of my... The first record I bought was uh, Ring My Bell. Okay. And... Um, I didn't understand the tones of the record. I didn't really know what the record was saying, but one of my older brothers, I have three older brothers, and my older brother who is gay would always really, really dance really hard when that record would play. And so I didn't understand why that record was, his, you know, like kind of just set him off. As I get older, I really, I, I get it now, you know, but, um, but I used to really just love music. And, you know, it was strange. I would always ask my mother for music for Christmas. Uh, my mom didn't have a lot of money, so I felt like, you know, I would try to keep my gifts under like $20, you know? So I would ask her for different albums and CDs. And I remember in, um, it might've been the ninth or the 10th grade, I asked her for The Adventures of Slick Rick oh, okay. for Christmas. And um, 
you know, the first song on that album is Treat Him Like a Prostitute. And it just blew my mind that, you know, because up until then, a lot of rap music was really very accessible and very dance oriented and, you know, or sucker MCs or something right. like that. And then here he is like, Treat Him Like a Prostitute. And I'm like, okay. Um, wasn't really sure exactly what that meant. Uh, I had the, I, the general idea of what a prostitute was, but I didn't know that you were supposed to treat girls that you liked like a prostitute. And then just getting into the world of people like Slick Rick and just this, this crazy imagery. Oh, wow, two for the price of one, I'll take it. Look at that. And just, um, you know, seeing how people are actually creating these entire worlds that they exist in. It was really, really interesting. Yeah, I, uh, I talked to a lot of artists throughout my career and so many of them will tell me, and just people in general will tell me that what they love most about hip hop music is uh, they can close their eyes and they're transported to those places. So like uh, Rocka from Dilate Peoples would say he'd listen to Run DMC and he'd be in New York City or he'd listen to um, the Ghetto Boys and he'd be in Houston. When you were listening to this music, did, was that part of the appeal for you? Oh what? yeah, absolutely. Um, you're listening to, especially like East Coast rap, right? Because I'm from, I'm from Texas, I'm in a small town and I don't ever, I don't think I'm ever actually going to go to New York at this point. I don't know anyone from New York at this point. So all my frames of reference for what New York was came from hip hop. So I'm just assuming that everybody in New York is a B-boy and everybody in New York is walking around and they all have leather jackets and hats on like Run DMC. Yeah. And so I want the leather jacket and the hat and I want to go to Hollis Queens and see LL Cool J and, and all of these things. And it was just, you know, it would just transport me. You know, I'm in this very little house. You know, my mom, like I said, we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So we're in a very small house and I'm in my little bedroom in the back room. And it allows me to transport from this very small bedroom in the small town in Texas to different places all around the world. You know, listening to Easy e We Want Easy. Um, you know, allows me to go to, you know, West Coast and then Compton, California, which I have no idea what I didn't know Compton, California existed before I heard EZ or NWA. So it was just a beautiful thing to be able to, like you said, you know, sit down in rooms and cut on music and then you're like, oh, wow, this is interesting. And listening to like the early records, um, like especially like Eric B and Rakim and not really knowing about the 5% Nation right, and right. understanding all the references. That was the thing I wanted to know. I wanted to know what that meant. I wanted to know what a buck 50 meant. I wanted right. to know what God body meant. Yep. You know what I'm saying? And um, the, the tricky thing was West Coast hip hop was, was a lot different because they were telling stories, but they didn't really talk a lot about gang banking in the early West Coast records. Like you didn't know Ice Cube was a Crip. You didn't know DJ Quick was a Blood. You just, you know, you knew LA was dangerous and that the police wanted to shoot you very badly. They really, really wanted to shoot you. Um, but you didn't really understand intrinsically about West Coast street culture. You just knew LA, it was going down in LA, you know? And as you get older and you start to, you know, learn different terminology and you begin to decipher things. And even with the West Coast videos, they were, you know, NWA were all black. So you didn't know that they were gangbangers or anything right. like that. So it just took a while to really decipher a lot of what people were really saying. Yeah. So you, you discovered this music and then from what I've read, there was a small pocket of people uh, in Port Arthur that were falling in love with the, the genre and the music like you. And it was all about who could get the tapes, who could have the tapes first. And then eventually 
this led you to uh, Pimp C. Is that, can you kind of tell that? How did that connection yeah, happen? Yeah, so um, I had two good friends of mine. One was uh, named Mitchell Queen. Mitchell Queen was actually um, Pimp C's first rapping partner, and he's the guy that actually came up with the name UGK, Underground Kings. And I had a good friend named Charles Jennifer. We were all in the same grade, and we had a lot of the same classes, and we were all falling in love with hip-hop at the same time in the same way. And so we felt like the more music we were able to get our hands on and the more music we listened to, the more we would understand the culture. So it was really about, like, yo, I just found this Lord Finesse uh, record, and now I know what this means, or I just found this uh, Gangstar record, you know, yeah. so now I know what this means, and like Kim Shabazz and all these different obscure rap records that kind of gave you a deeper insight into not only the culture of New York music, but then also what it meant to be from Brooklyn, from Queens, Long Island, and all of that. So as we were able to find different records, different people could come to the table and be like, I figured out what buck 50 means. They're cutting people. I'm like, oh, word? That's what that means? Like crazy. And so, you know, it was, it was this quest to be as knowledgeable as you could possibly be about hip hop culture. You know, so it wasn't always just about the music, because the music was a big part, and listening to different beats and different songs, like, yo, this is jamming. But then it also opens you up to have a deeper perspective of what was really happening in these different places at different times. Yeah. For, I think for a lot of people, the first raps are maybe some, in some ways, uh, you rap in someone else's lyrics in the mirror, being them. Do you remember when you started writing your own raps, and was that the progression from, like, kind of copying these dudes and then bringing it to yourself? No, in the earliest days of, of actually falling in love with hip hop, I didn't think that just anyone who wanted to be an MC could actually be an MC. Okay. I thought that you had to be a very special person from a very special place with, um, with unique perspectives based on where you live. Um, so listening to Big Daddy Kane, you know, let it roll, get bold. I just can't hold back a fold because I'm a man with soul and control and effect. I never thought I could do anything like that. I'm like, yo, where do these people live? What did, who taught these guys how to do this? And then it wasn't until people were doing it in my immediate proximity. Like I said, you know, Pimp C was actually recording hip hop music before we were a group. There were guys in my town that were recording hip hop music before I was making music. And then... When I saw this one particular guy, I don't want to say his name because it sounds like I'm shitting on him, but he became a, it was a guy who was in my class and he became an MC. And I'm like, wait a minute, if that motherfucker can rap, anybody can rap. Like this shit ain't special at all. So I was like, fuck it, I'm going to write a rhyme. And it was terrible. It was really bad, but it rhymed. And it was on time, which the other dude couldn't say that. So I was like, yo, this dude is, he's garbage, he's trash, but he actually wrote a rhyme and he rapped it. I'm like, maybe I can actually write a rhyme and rap it. And I just, I just really, really wanted in the culture. And so based on my knowledge about the culture and really paying attention to MCs, like I said, you know, Big Daddy Kane was a big influence on me. Coogee Rap was a big influence on me. The Juice Crew, Master Ace, Craig G., um, you know, Lord Finesse, guys like that, you know, the punchline guys were a really big influence on me. So I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to write a rhyme. And I feel like at the time where I was, people got to it first, but I don't think anybody wanted it to, as much as I did. Like, I didn't want to be cool. And I knew I wasn't cool. Okay. 
right at that time. I was like, I'm not going to be the cool guy. I can't believe guy. that. I can't believe yeah, cause that. Yeah, because like I said, we, I didn't have the clothes. Like, you know, when Pimp and Mitchell first started rapping, they had like Nike jumpsuits and a dookie rope chain and Kango hats. I couldn't afford none of that shit, right? So for me, I was just like, I just want to be the best rapper. Right? I'm not going to be the coolest rapper. I'm not going to have the flies gear, the big chains. I'm not going to have none of that shit. But I'm going to be a better rapper than everybody else. And that was just the model that I pretty much stuck with my whole career. Yeah, I feel like uh, I feel like I failed you in the old-fashioned trial. No, That's I'm going to I'm going to give it a try, man. Cheers. Cheers. Man. Here we go. That is not me. Oh. I blame uh, the, I blame uh, I'm, I'm gonna drink it. I'm gonna commit. I'm gonna it. commit. But commit. that is, this will I, be my first and last I, old fashioned. But I will say this though, your first old fashioned is never good. It takes a palate you got developed. So I won't know. You know. <laughs> my my palate and I will not know because we will we will live and die with this old fashioned right here today. All right. So fair fair enough. So, thank you, Alex. Thank amen. you. Something told me to stick with water, and I didn't use my better judgment. I'm telling you, after a few sips, you're gonna be like, damn, that shit's good. That's because I'll be drunk, Alex, that's not a... Yo, hey, as you know, by the, when the ends justify the means, but um, enough of the old-fashioned talk. You guys are making music. You have a group with a couple other guys, the four black ministers. Right. Pimp C is part of this group? Yes, yes, it was, um, it's me, Pimp C, um, Mitchell Queen, who I mentioned earlier, and a friend, Jalon Jackson. And so Jalon and I were a group before. We were the PA militia. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then um, C and Mitchell Queen were the original order of UGK. And then we all came together as four black ministers. And it was not ministers and church ministers, but as minister society. So we were menace and then stir as in S-T-I-R, like we were stirring up some shit. We were very deep about what that. we wanted these things to be yeah, like. It's very hip hop. And, and even then, Pimp was very locked in into what he wanted to do. So his concept of um, behind the idea of Four Black Ministers was that we were only going to make gangster music over roots reggae beats. So one of the first songs that we recorded um, was uh, Cocaine in the Back of the Ride, which is over a Bob Marley sample, which we ended up losing that sample once we decided to put it on an album because Rita Marley was like, you can't talk about cocaine. You can talk about weed, but you can't talk about cocaine. So she wouldn't clear it for that. So we had to remake the beat and all of that. But that was the original mindset behind that because at the time in um, 89 and 90, Reggae became a very big thing in the city of Houston. Dancehall reggae was a very big thing. And so we were always trying to make sure that we were cognizant of what was happening in Houston, not just from the recording arting aspect, but from the streets and from the clubs. So in case we wanted to take our music to Houston, that it would make sense if we went to a DJ in Houston and gave him the record. Well, because back then there were no hip hop clubs. Right In the late 80s, early 90s, there was no such thing as a hip-hop club. There were nightclubs that would play R&B music all night, and then they would give rap like a 30-minute window. Then right after that, they would do slow songs where people would actually slow dance in the club, and then they would get right back to the up-tempo R&B dance music. And so we just wanted to make sure that we could fit in there at some point. Yeah, I was gonna actually ask you about some of the early techniques to spread the music. You know, when I was coming up in Chicago, 
we were uh, referred to as a city of hella haters. And it was really hard to even break out. And then I think about it like we're complaining about breaking out from the third largest market in the country. And you guys are coming from Port Arthur, Texas. What, what were you doing to get out of there? And did any of those techniques of, of building from way back then stick with you today in promoting your music? There really was no technique. We had no idea what we were doing. The scene in the city was just starting to grow. The only person that really had a record company, right? There were a couple of guys that were putting records out, but the only guy that actually had a record company was Jay Prince, right? So if you weren't going to go to Rap-A-Lot and sign with Rap-A-Lot, it was just basically you're doing this for fun, you know? So we would just basically try to get DJs to hear the record. And back then, they had what, what was known as record pools. So you would have a guy who would basically had, would get records from rap people all over the world, all over the country, and then distribute those records to DJs. So in order to have a successful record pool, you had to have a lot of music. So anybody that made anything could submit it to the record pool, and if you had enough copies, they would accept the record and spread it out. We didn't even have that. We didn't have anything even pressed up at the time. So we're just guys walking around with cassette tapes right. trying to convince people to listen to the cassette tape. And so the first guy that was receptive um, actually owned a record store in the flea market. That was Russell Washington, and he owned a record store called Big Time Records. And his big thing at the time was dance hall mixtapes. And so... We went there and we was like, yo, we even made a rap song to one of these old Bob Marley records. And we let him hear some songs and he liked what he heard and the rest is kind of history. Right, and that was, uh, so that's after you graduated high school and you were working at that record store. Um, well, before, that's how I got to know the record store. We went to the flea market. We went, cause Chad was a big jewelry. Chad Pimp C was always um, a big jewelry guy. So this is back when people wore nugget rings, nugget bracelets, and that kind of thing. So we go to the flea market, we're looking for jewelry, and we see this guy has a, he has a sign on the wall that says he's looking for demos. But we didn't have the demo, so we literally had to drive all the way back to Port Arthur, get the demo, come all the way back to Houston, and, get, and play the demo for him in the store, and he actually liked what he heard. And then when I decided that rap was what I wanted to do and that I wasn't gonna go to college, um, this is where it ended up being my first job, was working in the record store. And, um, you know, which I love music, so it was a perfect job for me. I didn't really make any real money, and I used to have to take the bus in and take the bus back out. But I was immersed in the culture at that point. I got to listen to every album first. I got to go to the wholesalers, so I started to learn about how People sold music, um, you know, to get records in a record store. I learned everything about the business of music, you know what I'm saying, before I really was in the music business. Yeah, you guys put out um, the Southern Way EP, yes. and it starts to bubble around Texas, yeah. and then it starts stretching beyond, and major labels started calling the record store uh, and inquiring, was that something you wanted to do? Did, was the end goal always, we want to get, like, a major label deal and be... Um, be in that scenario. Yeah, once, once we decided that we wanted to be rappers, then the end game was to eventually sign to a record company. We ended up doing that with Big Time Records. And when we dropped the first EP, Southern Way, it released on the same day as Criss Cross's album, Damn. which was the biggest album in the country that day. 
but we outsold them in Houston, in Dallas, and in Lake Charles. And so people started wondering, what is this record that's selling more copies than Crisscross right now? And so record companies, um, the information for our record company was on the, uh, the back of the cassette, yep. and it was pretty much just the phone number to the record store. And so people start calling and inquiring about it. Different radio station DJs were calling. And then the first record company to call was Warlock Records. This is a record company none of you have ever heard before in your life. But Warlock Records was actually a big deal for underground music. Okay. And they were the first people to call and be like, we like this. We want to sign you guys. We have $10,000. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> you got $10,000. And Russ was like, no, nah, we're not doing that. The second label to call was... I can't remember the name of the company, but they were distributing Mix-A-Lot and Kid Sensation at the time. This is before Baby Got Back, so they're still very... This is like Posse on Broadway. I'm going to make a lot of obscure rap references that none of you are going to have ever heard about. These are all huge at the time. Posse on Broadway was a huge record at the time. And initially when I heard it, I'm like, oh, they're from New York because that's where Broadway is. I'm not knowing that there's a Broadway in every city in America. And so it, the record companies keep calling, keep calling all weekend. Record companies call, and we turn everybody down because we're starting to get the sense that maybe we're doing the right thing and we got something here. And then no one called. Okay. Right? Like Saturday, no one called. Sunday, no one called. And we thought we had played our hand too strong. Right. You know, I didn't realize record companies are closed on the weekend. So at the time, we think, oh shit, we fucked up. Everybody was calling. We told everybody no. Now the word is getting out through record companies. Don't call them. And the, so Monday morning, the first record company to call was Jive Records. And we were like, sold. Got it. Yeah. Now, at this time, you guys have a, the group is going. I'm just curious, did you all have a, like defined roles? Did you, how did, what was this partnership like between you and Pimp C? I know he produced the, the records, but beyond that, was there philosophical roles or how did you guys, the yin and yang of the group? I just stood out the way, right? Pimp C was extremely forward thinking in concepts, in production, the way we presented ourselves, how serious things need to be taken. So I just pretty much followed his lead, right? And all I had to do was show up with my verses written and not take a long time in the booth. Because at this time, we're paying for studio time out of pocket. And so we are paying like $150 an hour. And so we didn't want to waste the money. So it was about having your verse written, making sure you've got it down packed, you know exactly how you want to say it. So when you get in the booth, you're not there all day. Because I've seen people, you know, it takes maybe two, three hours to record a 16-bar verse. And so we didn't want to be those dudes because we couldn't afford to be those guys in the studio taking that long because we still had to, you know, it took about maybe three hours just to track a beat out, separate all the tracks and, and get the song ready to be recorded too. And I would just follow his lead. You know, he had a very, very good idea of what he wanted UGK to sound like, what he wanted UGK to look like, what the reception of our music and our presentation would be to people. And so all I had to do was just, you know, write a verse and a half, basically, because back then it was three, every song had basically had three 16-bar verses. He would do a verse, I would do a verse, and then we would split maybe the last verse or the second verse. And so all I had to do was have my verse written. He was actually pre-producing the song at home. 
spreading out the production over the tracks in the studio. He was singing a lot of the hooks on the songs. So he had the heavy weight of it. I was only pulling maybe 25% of the weight at that time. And I understood that he knew what he was doing. I, I didn't make beats. Right. Like I wasn't, well, I won't say this. I ended up making beats, but I wasn't a producer by any means. He was a producer. And there's a big difference between a person that can make a beat and a person that can actually produce a song. People that make beats tend to make beats that they can rap to. A producer can create a song or a soundscape for anyone. And so I would just take his lead on a lot of stuff. Now I would maybe come up, he would make a beat and I'd be like, yo, we should talk about this on that record. And maybe I would come up with a hook or something. But for the most part, everything that you've ever heard from UGK, probably 85, 95% of it came from the mind of Pimp C. It takes a, a good person too to admit that. I think a lot of people don't want to give the credit where it's due all the time. Or well, like, I don't want to get painted in a corner where somebody's like, oh, oh, find another hove, you know what I'm saying? Kind yeah. of a thing. Like, I don't want anybody to be like, oh, you did that? Can you do that again? No, I can't do that again. I didn't do it in the first place. Um, so, Jive calls Monday morning. You're like, that's a record label on the phone? We're good. Yes. You go, you go to New York. I'm guessing you're on, like, cloud nine at this time. Yeah, yeah. We went on, um, we signed with Jive Records on May 1st. We dropped our first record um, the second week of February, we ended up selling like 50,000 copies independently um, within the next two months. And so we jive called and we didn't have a lawyer. So um, we found a lawyer who was a former employee of Jive Records. So we're like, oh, we'll hire her and she can help us get what we want from the record company. Not right at all. Not right at all. She actually constructed a contract that benefited the record company more than it benefited us and got paid to basically fuck over us on behalf of us. Is it true that she had, she would receive $2,000 every time you guys fulfilled an option on Probably Jive? so, that, that's not far-fetched. That's not far-fetched at all because there were incentives for her within the contract. That's dirty. Um, so you signed the contract and then it's almost like you had an encounter in the hallway and then that day yeah, so we, we go in, we're in New York, we're staying in Columbus Circle at the Radisson. Um, Blue Note Cafe is right next door, so it's a very musical moment for us because a lot of the early UGK music sampled from jazz records as well. And so we're, we're really like engrossed by everything that we see in New York and we go in and they bought us the worst barbecue I've ever eaten in my life. There's a place... I don't know if it even exists anymore, but it was called Dallas Barbecue. And they thought they were like, yeah, we got some barbecue for you guys. And like, as soon as we opened up the foil, I was like, this ain't barbecue. I don't know what the fuck this is. And so um, we signed the contract. And, you know, as soon as you sign, you know, you get your, your check, right? So they hand him a check, they hand me a check, they hand Russell a check. And we're like, uh, will you guys excuse us for a minute? We need to go outside and talk about something. So we go outside and we're like, yes. You know, it's that moment when you jump in the air and it freeze frames kind of a thing. And um, while we're celebrating, we see KRS-One walking down the hallway. Couldn't have been more of a moment for us in our life. Like, because having people like KRS-One and, and Tribe Called Quest and, you know, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, you know, all of these people we were big fans of. And so to be on the label with them, to us was a huge deal. So KRS-One comes down the hallway and he's like, what's up? And, you know, just kind of being cordial. I'm like, yo, we're UGK, you know, we, we were from Texas. We came up here to sign with Jive. And as soon as we said, they're like, yo, did you sign yet? 
I'm like, yeah, we just signed. We just signed a contract. Like, fuck. Oh, all right, well, good luck. And just kind of walked off. Damn. And so we go from this highest moment of our life to like, what did we just do? Kind of a thing. And so it kind of set the tone for everything that we would experience from that point on in the music industry. It was pretty much downhill from there. And that's why we always try to tell people like, because the assumption is once you sign your record deal, you've made it. But that's really just the beginning of where everything is. And it kind of determines the choices you make once you sign that record deal determine where you're going to go from there. And for us, it was, you know, business-wise and financially, it was all downhill from there. Right. Um, for a lot of groups, that kind of trouble with the business can fracture the group. And we hear stories time and time again of groups signing a record deal. Maybe their record doesn't come out. Or I know Jive kind of finished your first album without you. They just had to get, the, they took the beats yeah, and redid so, them. Yeah, so we had a lot of sampled music in, on the first album. And it wasn't necessarily that the music didn't clear. They just refused to pay for the samples. So instead, they took the songs that had samples and they went in the studio with the producer that worked at the record company and reproduced five of our songs without even telling us. We didn't hear it until we, we got like physical copies of the album that were already being sent out to distributors and one-stops and everything. So at that point, there was nothing we could do. Yeah, um, and it's, I know- And songs, it was terrible. Like, like, I, like why, even, why would you even want to put this shit out? This shit sounds like trash. I would just assume you do an EP of the stuff that you were happy with, you know, but they, they felt different. And contractually, we had, they had the right to do that. There were a lot of things in our contract that we didn't even realize were in there clause-wise. Because when you sign a record contract, you know that there's money at the end of it, right? So your job is to get there, sign it as quickly as possible, and get the money. So you'll get a contract, and a contract may have 40 to 50 some odd pages. You're only going to see five or six of those pages when you sign the contract, and you're only going to really, they're going to open it up to page six. Okay, you guys wanted three videos. This says you're going to get three videos, so initial here. And you're like, cool. And then you go to the next pull tab, and the next pull tab, and the next pull tab that has the things that you wanted in the contract, how much money you're going to get, how long the deal is going to be, all the things that you want in the contract is pretty much all that you see. And you don't realize that you've only seen six pages of a 50-page document, and everything that they want is on the other 54 pages. So you're already operating at a loss. And your lawyer is supposed to help interpret that kind of thing. My lawyer did not. Yeah. So as you went, and I know there's stories of, like, you were working delivering food while you have top records yeah. around the country. Was it the friendship or you believing in the, the Pimp C vision and the UGK that you guys had cultivated that kept you, kept you going? Because you released together multiple albums, whereas some groups would have been like, the record business sucks, fuck this. I'm gonna, you could have gone, you had scholarship offers at college. What kept, uh, kept you guys continuing on? Uh, initially, there was this sense of nobody understands what's happening but us. Right, And so we we're like, we can hold this together. We make the music. As long as we continue to make good music, we should be okay. As life starts to get in the way and you know, people start to fall in love and have children and all of that, the music becomes less of a priority, right? And so it gets to the point where I wake up one day and I'm like, fuck this, I'm tired of this. 
I don't want to do this anymore. And Pimp was like, no, we've got to stay the course. This shit is bigger than us now. UGK isn't just a group, it's a movement. We represent for a lot of people who will never get to go and do and see all of the things that we get to go and do and see. And then next month, Pimp is like, fuck this. Yeah. I'm done with this shit, I want out. And I'm like, no, we gotta stay the course. So it was really just about us encouraging each other consistently over the years because Pimp's whole thing would be like, fuck these people, let's go to New York and let a box of rats loose in the record company. That was, he always wanted to do this. Every time he got mad at the record company, like, fuck that, I'm gonna go to New York and I'm gonna let like 50 rats loose in the fucking office. And I'm like, they may not even buzz us in that day and then we're just gonna be stuck in the lobby with a box of rats. Like, New York already has a rat problem. We're not helping them in any form or fashion. But it was really just about believing in what we had created and believing in each other and holding each other down in these moments of weakness, which came a lot often than a lot of people really would like to admit. There's a lot of times when you'll go to a show and you had to drive there in a 13-passenger van and then somebody else pulls up in a brand new tour bus and then you call your record company be like, why, we, why don't we have a tour bus? You didn't ask for one. Well, I'm asking for one. Well, it's not in your contract. So, so then you don't get it and you see people who actually had lawyers that benefited them and you know they, they got more money for their deal. I remember I used to look at Souls of Mischief like, damn, where's their lawyer? Because they had the best videos, they had the best budget, they toured consistently, they were always in the place that you wanted to be. And they were signed to my record company. So I'm like, why does Soul and Mischief get all this good shit and we don't get shit? Well, what's your contract say? That was the whole thing, what's your contract say? What's your contract say? I'm like, fuck you and this contract. Like, seriously. But and then you, you educate yourself on that kind of thing and... and you realize, okay, we need to go in and renegotiate this. And so every time you want to renegotiate, they're like, well, we can do that, but you need to take another budget, right? Like, well, we're not paid for the last album we just put out. Yeah, and you're not gonna get paid because your account's in the red, but I can give you the budget for the next album right. and we can negotiate a couple of things. And you like, okay, cool, I'll take it because you don't have any money, you need some money, and you want to keep going and you want to further yourself, but you're really just digging yourself deeper and deeper into a hole that can almost never be filled based on the terms of your contract. And so you're constantly learning different things financially, accounting-wise. It's like, okay, we need a better rate on this, this, and this so that we can recoup better, recoup quicker. And they're like, okay, cool, take another budget, you know? And yeah. so... Every time you take money, you're just constantly digging that ditch and you never end up out the hole. So at some point you realize we can only really lean on each other. Yeah. Is it that mentality that allowed you, or maybe not allowed, but I don't know, maybe it was inside and forced you to continue on with UGK when Pimp C went to jail. And then of course, after his, um, his death, you continue to carry this flag. Does that stem from your time in the trenches together? Yeah, absolutely, because there are a lot of people when Pimp first went to jail, everybody, and I mean every record company executive, everybody was like, man, he fucked up. You know what I'm saying? You're the smart one. Just go do your thing, right? Just go do you. And I'm like, I'm not going to leave my man like that. Like, he's not, he's not going to jail forever. He'll be out in a couple of years. I just got to figure out how to keep this shit going until he gets out. Now, I had no idea how I was going to do this. I went into a very very deep depression. I was drinking maybe a fifth of Hennessy a day. I was a wreck. 
you know, I only got out of that by it. My wife was like, yo, you need to go to church. You need to get your shit together because this isn't going to work, you know? And, and um, you know, I started to, to try to figure out how am I going to do this. And the thing that, that kind of set off a light bulb was the Free Yayo campaign from Eminem. So when Tony Yayo first got locked up from G-Unit, they did this whole Free Yayo campaign. Eminem would wear the shirts, everybody would wear the shirts everywhere. And they were like, Free Yayo. I'm like, okay, I'm gonna do Free Pimp C. Fuck that, I want my homie out of jail too. And so did other people who recognized the significance of a person like Pimp C. So Paul Wall was the, probably the first person who was like, yo, I need one of them Free Pimp C shirts. Like, um, I, need, I need you to give me one. I'm like, well, I'm not making them. Somebody makes one for me every time I do a video or I go to a show, a guy makes me a shirt. So I had him make Paul a shirt, and then Slim Thug was like, yo, I need a free Pimp C shirt. Then like Ludacris, and then people from all over the industry started wanting free Pimp C shirts. And then so at the time, um, because I wasn't doing UGK, I was doing a lot of features on people's album. People would call and be like, yo, come get on the album, you know what I'm saying, you know, keep the shit going. I'd get on a song, I'd say, free Pimp C. And then, because um, everybody kept asking, are you going to go solo? Are you going to go solo? And I was like, nah, this is, UG, this is UGK for life. And then so I started that campaign, you know, the UGK for life, saying that on records, wearing that on T-shirts. And then um, eventually I was like, okay, I'm going to have to do an album in order to keep this going. So I go to Jive Records and I say, yo, I want to do a Bumby solo album. Yeah, we don't think that's gonna work. Pimp C was the music guy. He understood everything. You're just kind of a rapper. We're gonna have to find producers. They're not gonna be from the South. This shit's not really gonna work. But in your contract, we have a clause. I'm like, what do you mean you have a clause? Well, there's a clause in your contract that says if one of you goes to jail or gets killed, which this is what they thought we were gonna be. This is who they thought we were. If one of you goes to jail or gets killed, you can bring another member in at a reduced rate. So, it, so we would be able to keep UGK going as a group, but it would be for half of the points that you signed for. And I was like, that shit's really in my contract? That if one of us dies? It was like, no, not dies, gets killed, like kind of a thing. It was really, was really, really awful. And uh, I was like, no. I was like, well, can I go somewhere else and do a solo album? And they're like, yeah, if somebody would put it out, yeah, sure. We're still gonna have to get paid some points for that, but yeah, if you can find somebody that's willing to do that, then yeah, sure, knock yourself out. Good luck with that. And so I, I went to the only person that I felt would not only understand my position, but understand my movement and what needed to be done, and that was Jay Prince from Rapalot. And so I went and sat down with him, and I was like, yo, I want to do this solo album. He was like, absolutely, let's do it, you know? And so we went in, we did it, and um, he had a distribution situation through Asylum Records at the time, and um, we put out the album, it ended up selling 750,000 copies, and still the biggest selling album that Asylum Records put out during the time, because they had us, they had Gucci Mane in his earliest um, career, and a couple of other people, but our album actually did real numbers. And I still think Trill might be my best body of work as a solo artist, because there was, there was just an urgency to, to create good music. Not, not making a good album wasn't an option. If I drop the ball, UGK doesn't continue, and Pimp C comes home to nothing. Right. You know, right. so I gave the album everything I could lyrically. I went out to all the best producers that I knew, and they gave me the best music possible, and we put together a really, really good body of work. And it was very odd for me because I never, 
in my entire career, I was always in groups. I was never a solo rapper. So the first time I made music, I was in a group. The second time I made music, I was in a group. I had always been with other people. So, and then when I got in UGK, I felt like I was in the best group in the world. Right. So I had no want or need to go off and find myself or anything like that. I was in an amazing group. I had an amazing partner. We never had to go outside of the group because I don't know if you know this, but Pimp C produced 95% of everything that UGK did. Like he would make all those beats in the house. And so I was like, we never had to go out and get beats from anybody. We never had to ask producers for music. Whenever we did get beats from other people, it was, it was like, hey man, we grew up listening to you. Like we went to Molly Mall. We grew up listening to you. We really loved your sound. We want to do a record with you. And then he had relationships with people like Jazzy Faye. And he was like, hey man, we need to do this kind of record, but Jazzy does this better than we do. Manny does this better than we do, you know? And so I had no want or need to be solo. I wanted to keep doing everything musically with him. He was my best friend, he was my partner. We had an amazing chemistry. And um, I only went out to do music with other people as a necessity. You know, but it was always about just keeping the movement alive until he was able to come back and be part of it again. Yeah, I remember being, being in, in high school and then in college during I'm gonna that. give this another try. Second sip is always better than the first. It was not. Are you like putting on a show to make me look bad or? No, no, no. <laughs> I did this to myself. Okay. Um, but I, I remember being in high school, college, and during this time, and also then Houston starts to really pop with like Mike Jones and Paul Wall and Slim Thug. Yes. Uh, and then you've, you've like successfully kept it going and kept it warm. He gets out and you guys start the, the double album. Did you know at the time, I think we were talking before, um, before this with the photographer, with Bradley said he walked down the aisle to international players. And yeah. I was telling you about uh, my wife and, and our wedding with that song. Did you know that this was going to be such a big record when you made it? So Pimp was, like I said, this was a one of a kind musical genius. And I'm just saying this because he was my partner. He had this incredible foresight. So on the Ride and Dirty album, which is our seminal album, we have a song called One Day on this album. One Day was actually a solo record from an artist named 3-2. Yep. Rest in peace. Yep. Um, so we go to listen to 3-2's album. He plays all these songs. One Day is the last record he plays. And he's like, yeah, but I ain't gonna put that on my album. No, that's just, that's on this tape, but I'm not putting that shit on the album. Pip's like, what do you mean? This is the best record you got. This is the record. This is your hit record. He's like, man, that shit too slow. It's too, you know, it's too sad and all that shit. He's like, so you really not gonna put this record out? No, I'm not gonna put, give it to me. Mm -hmm. He's like, what you mean? Give me this record. I'm gonna keep your first verse. Me and Bun gonna do the last two verses. I'm gonna get with Big Bub. Big Bub was the producer of the record. He's like, and um, I mean, Big Black, sorry. And he's like, and give it to me. We'll put it on our albums. Like, fuck it. You can have that shit. Take it. It's still one of our strongest records that we've ever done. Yeah. And he was always like that. He could always see so far ahead. So the whole story with International Players Anthem was when, when Pimp was locked up, um, first of all, let me say this. Pimp C's two favorite rappers were Sibo and Project Pat. But probably more so Project Pat. Like, you, Project Pat could do no wrong. So Project Pat had the original version of International Players Anthem. It was called I Choose You. 
And when he was in prison, this was one of the albums that he was able to get his hands on. He listened to it over and over and over again. So he comes home, we're working on the album. He calls Paul, DJ Paul. Pimp C and DJ Paul from 3-6 Mafia were very, very close friends. And he says, uh, Paul, y'all need to put that Project Pat record back out. He was like, what do you mean? That song, I Choose You, that shit was a hit. You need to put that shit back out. He's like, Pimp, that shit was two years ago. We got another out. Man, fuck that shit. You need to put that song back out. That's a motherfucking hit record. And Pimp was like, man, we're not putting that record back out. He's like, okay, give it to me. Okay. He was like, what you mean, give it to you? It's already been out. I don't care. Give me that track. Just give me the beat. And I'll take it from him. He's like, man, Pimp, we can make you a million beats, bro, just like that. No, I need that beat. That beat is a motherfucking hit record. And they were like, are you sure? I'm positive. He's like, we got a budget. We're going to pay you for the beat. Just give me that beat. Trust me. He's like, okay. So then he gets the beat. We record on it. And we actually put 3-6 Mafia on the record. Okay. Now, this is right around the time when 3-6 Mafia wins the Oscar. Right. Um, for, um, it's hard out here for a pimp from Hustle and Flow. They go to renegotiate with their record company for better terms as artists. They're like, yo, we're Oscar winners. You know, they were like, that ain't got shit to do with making albums, we don't give a fuck. So they go back and forth with their record company. The record company puts them basically on lock. So they're not allowed to record any vocals with anyone. But their production deal is separate from their artist deal. So they're able to produce records, but they can't feature on any records. So we can still use the beat, but they can't be on the record. So now this record is only half done. So. We put the record on a sampler. Sampler, what happened, with, people used to actually take snippets from their songs on their albums and make like a sampler so you would have an idea of what the album would sound like and the direction of the music. And so we, we did that and it got passed around during the All-Star Game in LA. Okay. Now separately, Big Boy gets a copy of the sampler and Andre 3000 gets a copy of the sampler. Now, they're not recording as outcasts at the moment because Andre wants to be an actor. Right. Yeah. So Andre's in LA, he's taking acting classes. This is when he gets on like Four Brothers and shit like that, right? And so Big Boy hears it. Big Boy's like, I love this song, um, but I just want to rap to the drums. I, I'd love to be on this record. And we're like, great, we need somebody on this record. He's like, okay, but can I just rap to the drums? I don't give a shit. Yeah, just get on the record. Perfect. Andre calls literally within two days. Yo, I just heard this song. It's amazing. Is it too late to get on this record? Not at all. Okay, I just want to rap to the music. I don't want to rap to the drums. Okay. This, is the, this is the yin and yang of Outkast, right? This is why Outkast is so amazing. And so we're like, cool, let's do it. And, and so we record the song, and because of the fact that Jive is distributed by Arista, Outkast is signed to Arista, we don't have to clear it, because we're all basically on the same label. But Andre is adamant, I'm not doing no video, though. That was the whole thing, because he was, he was really, he was like, I'll rap on it, I love it, I want to rap on it, I ain't doing no video, though. I was like, okay, we'll cross that bridge when we get to it. And so we do this song, and then the label's like, obviously this is the hit, we have to do this you've got to figure out a way to get Andre on this record. So I'm like, okay, we're rappers, play to the ego. We're gonna to play to the ego. So I go to Dre, I'm like, look, we wanna do this video, but you get to decide everything about this video. You come up with the concept, you pick the director, whatever you say is gonna be, that's what it's gonna be, we're just gonna show up. He's like, okay. And then he obviously comes back with the most obvious 
concept for it. It's going to be a wedding. I don't know if I should get married. So we go to L.A., and um, I think this was during BET Hip Hop Awards in L.A., right? So we're in L.A., and so the word starts to get out that UGK and Outkast are doing the video. So Juicy and Paul at this point live in L.A. because they're trying to get more movie action. And they had that reality show. Yes. Yep. Which had Joe Schumacher in it. I don't know if anyone knows who Joe Schumacher is. Joe Schumacher is a huge movie director. I think he did... He didn't do Speed, but he did a lot of yeah. big movies. And he's also flamboyantly gay. And so three, this has nothing to do with the song. It's just a funny story. And 3-6 Mafia invite him to their offices to convince him to work with them and bring strippers. Didn't work out. For a gay man, for a flamboyantly gay man. Obviously it didn't work. So we're in LA, we're shooting a video, 3-6 Mafia is there, we're like, yo, we need y'all to be in a video. And then all these different people start showing up. Like Lucas Haas shows up on set, which I didn't know, Lucas Haas, Andre Johnson, I'm not from Andre, Andre 3000, um, Toby Maguire, Q-Tip, Leo DiCaprio. This is like, for lack of a better term, ladies, excuse me, they were called the Pussy Posse because they're all these very good-looking men with money, and they're just going around L.A. just fucking everything at the time. And so different people start showing up on set, different comedians, different rappers. That's how David Banner ends up in the video with me because Banner just shows up like, yo, I want in kind of a thing. And he happened to have a suit, which I don't understand why, but he showed up to the video in a suit. I don't know if he came from some ASCAP party or something. And so I'm like, yeah, sure, come get in the car with me. And so this is how the video ends up becoming what it is. My wife is in the video, she, but she didn't want to be on scene. So my wife is the, she's the direct, she's the choir director in the video. So everybody, T-Pain shows up, he's in the video, Alex Thomas shows up, all these different, if you go back and watch Players Anthem and look at the cameos, everybody is in this video. Magic Don Juan shows up with his lady friends, we'll call them, and a couple of other pimps show up with their lady friends, and, and we're actually in a real church in the hood in South Central, and you know, people from the hood start showing up and seeing all these buses and all this crazy shit, but if that's, so that's basically how International Players Anthem, the song and the video kind of happened, and it ended up being like this whole big, big deal. It's probably still the biggest record, the biggest UGK record that we made. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a ubiquitous, right? I mean, I think people that probably don't even know it's you or know anything about UGK have heard, they hear that song. I hear it every day somewhere, just living life. I get asked to do weddings every week because of this record. Are you missing out on a revenue stream? Are you? No, no, no. I mean, I, I've, I've done a couple, but it's very awkward because it's just me, right? right? Like, right. Andre's not coming. That's, that's a no-brainer. Andre ain't coming to your wedding. He may show up on some Bill Murray shit, but you can't invite him. Um, Big Boy might come, but Big Boy's numbers are much higher than mine. Yeah. Big Boy commands a bigger, a bigger price than I do, but, it, it's, but I always get added in videos of people, these random people, it doesn't matter, black, white, Latina, Asian, you name it, everybody's dancing the player's anthem at the wedding now. It's, just, it's, it's kind of the new Jagged Edge Run DMC type of thing that is played at every black wedding in America is the Let's Get Married remix is everywhere. But I think it's, if you're gonna be known for something, that's not a bad thing to be known for. Everybody always walks up, oh my God, we got married to your song. Oh my God, we got married to your song. I'm like, 
to the song, or did you like at some point just kind of dance to the song? Well, you know what I mean, but we got married to your song. And I, you know, you, people can walk up and say a lot worse than that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to ask you one or two more questions and then leave a little time for the audience if okay. anyone has a question out here. One thing I wanted to kind of go back to, and we, we spoke on this briefly uh, before, but you do Big Pimpin' with Jay-Z. Yes. Jay-Z has quoted your guys' raps in his own songs, um, like 99 Problems. Yeah. And uh, you were talking about the other one as well. But he embraced you, but... And you all loved East Coast rap so much. I wanted to know where you all fit uh, in the, the East Coast, West Coast rap things. You guys are from the South. There was a thing, uh, big thing about not being taken seriously. It didn't seem if New York hip hop loved you guys back. Was there a point where you realized that? And then it seemed like you embraced it and were like, fuck you, we're making country rap songs. It's not. Yeah, so um, Karis One made a statement um, that basically said, if you weren't from New York, you're just rapping, you're not hip hop. You're not a part of the culture, you're not contributing to the culture. Only New York rappers are actually creating hip hop music because they're from the birthplace of hip hop. And we took great offense to that because all our lives, that's all we wanted to be a part of. We didn't just want to make rap music, we wanted to be accepted by the hip hop greats. That's all I ever wanted was for like a really, really well-known New York lyricist to walk up to me and be like, yo, you got flow. Right. And you know? Biggie, Biggie gave you props. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We met Biggie um, right after we were on the Minister Society con uh, um, album. And um, we met Biggie at our distributor in Atlanta. This was when Craig Mack had went plant, I mean, had went gold with Flavor in Your Ear, and Biggie was still maybe a little bit behind him. So everybody was making this huge deal about Craig Mack when obviously if you're a lyricist, you know, it's really Biggie. It's all about Biggie. And so we walked up to Biggie to introduce ourselves. It's like, yo, I'm Bum B, this Pimp C, we're UGK. Yeah, I know who y'all niggas is. Oh, word? I word? I, nobody told me. Yeah, yeah, y'all on the Menace soundtrack. He was like, I was hanging with MCA in LA. I told him y'all song was better than his. I'm like, good to know. Good. That's good to know. And so, you know, we were, you know, we were excited that different artists, like we met Buster, Buster was familiar. I remember meeting, you know, um, Bismarcky, who I was a huge Bismarcky fan all my life. And he was like, yeah, you're Bum B, you did the murder song. Like, yeah, you got lyrics. I'm like, yes, I made it. And, but KRS's statement really, really hurt our feelings. Like we were very offended, but also deeply hurt because I always thought of KRS as the, the best you could be as an, as an MC. He was socially conscious, he, was, he made hood records, um, he was a great spokesman for the culture, he was huge, I mean, I don't think there are more people, there can't be anybody more well-read in hip-hop than Karis One. And to know that he was not embracing us as a group and had, really had no intention of embracing us, um, really, really bothered us. And so Pimp was like, you know what, fuck it then. If they don't want, if hip-hop don't want to accept us, then fuck it. We, we make country rap tunes. We don't even make hip-hop music. So put y'all shit on one side of the record store, put our shit on the other side of the record store, and we'll see which shit sells the most, you know? And it was this identity of, like, at that point, it was like, you know what, it's just about the South now, right? New York will take care of New York. The West Coast will take care of the West Coast. We've got to hold the South down. And so it was that 
that embracing of that Southern identity over everything that really informed a lot of other groups. So when we talked to T.I., talked to Killer Mike and guys like that that came after us, that was they, for them, was what they said was the turning point for them as artists. Because if you listen to T.I.'s first album, there was an effort to try to please the East Coast. Right. I think a lot of us initially, you know, you kind of want verification right. from people from the birthplace of hip hop. And then you realize, you know what, they were just repping their hood. It wasn't that New York was better than anybody else. They were just repping New York. Most of the record companies are in New York. It's easier for a New York record company to promote and market an artist that's from their borough. So if you're in Def Jam Records and you're in Brooklyn, you're from Brooklyn, and a Brooklyn group comes in, they're talking about all the shit that everybody in your hood talks about. So it's easier for you to have a frame of reference and a better understanding of who they are, what they represent. And so from your standpoint, it's easier for you to market it, promote it, get them the right beats, the right video directors, all of that stuff. We just had to take a lot of our career and our movements in our own hands. And as we went from city to city, people started to embrace the fact that we were like on, on, about some South shit. So you would go to Mobile, you go to Birmingham, you go to Atlanta, and you go to Jackson, Mississippi, and these people were excited to be, it was a South thing in the room, right? And so at that point, different people in different markets start to feel proud right. of where they're from and emboldened as opposed to feeling that what they're doing is a little bit more inferior. So that's where you get the David Banners the big crits having this strong idea of Mississippi and we're going to put Mississippi on the map and you get like a Nelly from the Midwest who was a huge fan of uh, UGK I'll tell that story next time that's a that's a Man. really crazy story we, the Nelly story we, we literally I, I have so many questions I didn't even get to yet and we could spend an hour on Biz Marquis I love I love oh, yeah. Biz Marquis he did a Hyde Park Brewfest earlier this summer he DJed for like he had a two hour set he DJed for an hour and 55 minutes the very end, he walks around the turntables and does Just a Friend of and wraps it. And I, I was like, damn. I, I love Bismarck. Bismarck is literally nothing but hip-hop. Yeah. Like, there's no other factor in his life outside of his family that he really even gives half a damn about. Bismarck is also one of the freshest people ever in hip-hop. In the early days of hip-hop, there were very few people. Bismarck and, and Heavy D, rest in peace, were the best dressed people in hip hop culture in the early days. And last thing about Biz, because I, I do have a question I really want to ask you. I feel like with his album titles, Biz Never Sleeps, The Diabolical Biz, he kind of set a trend of rappers being larger than life Absolutely. figures. And like, I was talking to Wu, some of the Wu Tang Clan, they're like, yeah, like that's how that's making yourself into a, a larger than life character. The wrestling, I, the wrestling way of building the character, I don't think he gets enough credit for introducing some of that with his the covers, the titles, all yeah. that. Um, but I want to I want to la ask you a, a, a last question and then get some from the audience and kind of combine a couple things. Um, I want to read a quote from you. You talked about wanting to be embraced by hip hop culture. You said on NPR, I believe it was on the show with Ali Shaheed Muhammad. Yes. Um, and you said. Rap is part of hip-hop, but every rapper doesn't represent the hip-hop culture. Every DJ does not represent the hip-hop culture. Most people think hip-hop is music. 
they don't really understand hip-hop as a culture, it's a lifestyle. It's much more than just the songs you hear on the radio or on your favorite commercial or a movie trailer. It's much deeper than that. The principles behind the culture of hip-hop are much more deeper than that. I want to know how you, you learn that in those principles and does that uh, influence your decision to when a lot of your peers were shunning the younger generation and like people my age and the internet popping up and, and blogs being a way that we would trade music. A lot of your generation was like, fuck that, I'm not doing that. Instead, you were all about that. You collaborated with a lot of younger artists. Um, we asked you to do the first time um, we met, you came to our studio, recorded a song with GLC on, uh, and for no, you just showed up to do it. You, we worked at South by Southwest a lot of times. You did this talk today. You've adopted a moniker of Uncle Bun. And that's not a title like you can just kind of give yourself. People have to yeah. embrace that. But it, it does come from a mindset and comes from something inside. Is your, your love of hip hop culture and your view of it like that, does that influence your decision making in some way? And like this idea of like um, the trilogy and Uncle Bun, et cetera. Yeah, once we got over being butthurt by what KRS-One said, um, we realized that the artists, the, your fellow artists and your contemporaries don't really get to define your place in the culture. The people define your place in the culture. And as we got around and got to meeting other artists from New York, it was very clear that the hip-hop community as a whole were embracing us. They respected what we did. Um, they respected our contributions. And so for me, I was like, yes, we could still represent this idea of country rap tunes, but country rap tunes is also a part of hip hop culture, right? And so for me, as I see younger artists come in a game that have talent, but maybe not the outlets, it reminds me of my earliest struggles, trying to be heard, trying to be seen, wanting to be appreciated by my peers, my contemporaries, and particularly the people that I look up to. And so for me, it's extremely important to embrace younger artists that have a, not only are good rappers, but have a really good sense of themselves and have a really strong understanding of how they want to contribute to what's been done already. Because record companies will tend to, tend to want to sign artists that are easily marketable, that are easy to capitalize on, and don't necessarily want to contribute to the culture, right? Because this is a money grab now, right? Like, and it's fair, like, because artists now have more control of what they can say or do and how they can be seen than they've ever had before. But when the earliest days of hip hop, nobody really was making money, right? People weren't making millions and millions of dollars. I always tell people, um, you know, the first generation of hip hop, got paid in sandwich bags. Second generation of hip hop, which is my generation, got paid in grocery bags. This new generation of hip hop is getting paid in trash bags. They are making stupid money nowadays. And they've actually learned how to cut record companies essentially out of the loop. When we came up, there was no way to get in, into the music industry without going through a record company. And you had to be signed to a very reputable record companies that even make a dent. But then we started to see independent companies like Cash Money, companies like Rap-A-Lot Records, even like Uncle Luke. Uncle Luke was a very huge deal. Um, 
in the South to see somebody who basically wasn't rapping at all, right. right? But understood the business and understood how to market himself to his base and make millions and millions of dollars. So as we became more informed and more educated, not necessarily just about the music industry, but about the dynamic between the artists and the consumer, right? Which was something that record companies did not want you to know. We were able to take more control of our careers and our destiny. And so for me, when I see a young artist that has a good sense of, of himself, right? He's very confident, very strong. He's not gonna be easily talked out of how he feels and what he wants to do. It's important to embrace that artist and give them as much information, as insight as you can. Now, everybody's road is gonna be different. We're all going from A to B, but literally every artist is gonna take a different path to get from A to B. But there are some general hurdles that every artist is gonna come up against at some point in time. So the more that you know about these particular things, you can avoid a lot of things that held a lot of us back. You know, we were always very emotional about the record company. We'd be like, fuck them, we ain't giving them no music. They're a record company, they got 30 other artists. Right, they, don't, they don't give a shit if you don't want to turn in an album. We'll just put out other artists, we'll, we'll consistently sign other artists, and we'll make money. You'll be at home mad, butthurt, and broke, you know? And so when I see like a GLC, you know, when I see like a Killer Mike and guys like that that have very strong identities and are very assured in themselves, it's important to embrace that artist, inform that artist, educate that artist, and basically give them that kind of a cosign. And if we don't do that, then the industry decides the direction of the culture because the average listener doesn't really know what hip hop is as a culture, unless they're from a certain place where it's constantly in their face all the time. They just wanna hear good music. It's our duty to inform through music, right? To give people like, yeah, this is fun and we're having a good time, but let's not forget the important shit, the real shit that matters, you know what I'm saying? Family, relationships, that kind of a thing. It's important to put that kind of inflection into your music and not be afraid to share your true values and your true self with the people that listen to your music because we're probably only separated by the amount of money that we make for a living. Everything else is part of the human condition. Man, I wish I had a better job. I used to wish I had a better job. I wanted to get money in the way that these other dudes were getting money. You know, I wish I had a good relationship with my family. Um, you know, I wanna be in love. I wanna have a family. I wanna be comfortable. I wanna be happy. All of these things are very general with the human condition. This is something that pretty much everyone in this room can agree on, these type of things, you know what I'm saying? It's about the process of getting to these places that really differs. And that just depends on where you're at and what your own individual worldview is. You know what I'm saying? Some of us don't see love as soon as others. Some of us have to fight very hard to really understand what love truly is. And I don't necessarily mean relationship love, right? Like familial love. Everybody's parents, it, it blew my mind when I would meet people that would tell me that their mother or their father never told them I loved you. Like my, my dad used to always, my, if I, my dad walked in here right now, my dad would say, I love you. And he would try to kiss me on the lips right now, right? Because I am his baby boy. Right? You're never, you're always your parents' baby. You may grow up and get mature and then get married and have kids, but they still see that little kid that was crawling around the room. Right? And it blew my mind when I realized that people didn't 
hear that and they didn't get that in their families. And so they spent a lot of time just wanted to be loved and appreciated. And this is kind of how gangs sort of get, it, I could go very deep on this from a sociological level, but you know, we're all looking for the same things. We want to be loved. We want to be appreciated. We want to have a comfortable life. And I'm very lucky that hip hop was able to afford that to me. Awesome. Um, we have some time left. I just, I guess if there are questions. Third, third time's a charm, right? Third time's a definitely, charm. Definitely, definitely. John, it's not, it's not gonna work. Yeah, and now it's watered down, so. So you liked it now? It's basically an old fashioned with water. No, it's, it's worse. It's, it's worse. You know what, I feel like you knew you didn't like old fashioned and you just, this was well, just I've, a. I've seen people order them all the time. I go out to dinners and go out for drinks with people and everybody orders an old fashioned. I've never asked what an old fashioned is, what's in it. I just, I never really cared for it. And I didn't want to order like a lemon drop martini in a big glass and hold my pinky up and all that shit. So I just said, fuck it, I'll have what he's having. So if you learn anything from Bun B, never have what he's having. And me? Yeah, me yeah, yeah, you did this. Me, B? Oh, man. Um, yeah, no, I, if there, there is some time left, I know we have a, I think we have a mic kind of around. Is there anyone with a question? And I think Mel or someone has a microphone. Oh, here we go. Can we open it up to the audience? I always call this the Donahue time. Yeah, right. I think some Obviously, people... this is another obscure reference that none of you even know. Donahue was like the first... Jerry Springer, Dr. Phil kind of guy that would have people on the stage and they would talk about the worst parts I, of their I, lives and how terrible things were and then allow the audience to basically build on how terrible their life is. Damn. So you're one of my favorite rappers. Thank um, you. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And two of my favorite verses ever come from you, actually. So oh, wow. Murder... And then reaction, the Bun B remix with you, Killer Mike, all y'all on it. Yes. You're a crazy closer. Can you kind of take me into your creative process with closing out these tracks? Because you're a monster when it comes to like murky niggas on the back end of a record. Uh, again, um, I knew I wasn't going to ever be the coolest rapper, the best looking rapper. I've been a big boy all my life, so I can buy the nice clothes, but I'm not going to look as good as those clothes as other rappers might look or whatever. That's my insecurity. Deal with it. But... I always felt that all I had was my ability, right? And I always wanted to be the best rapper in the room. Now, what happens is when I do songs with other people, there's usually two points that they have. One, they underestimate me and I fuck over them lyrically. Two, they overestimate me, then their insecurity comes into point and I fuck over them literally, lyrically. So, from, and for me, the best rapper is always the last rapper, right? You get to close out the song. Your worldview determines whether or not people have a good experience on, with the record. And with reaction, reaction is funny because rappers will do this all the time. And T.I. did this in that room. T.I. was like, you out-rap them other motherfuckers. You ain't finna out-rap me. Okay, you're underestimating me. You're already done. You're already done at this point because your whole point now, your whole point of reference is what I'm gonna do is in the back of your mind, right? So you're not rapping to the people, to the beat or anything, you're rapping to me, which is inconsequential as far as what I'm doing. I'm rapping to the world. I need everybody in the world to be like, yo, that dude is nice. 
And so that was the whole point of Reaction. Reaction is actually one of my favorite verses because I'm on a song with two really, really good rappers, but I know in my heart they're not better than me, not in the moment. Now, they may have other songs that are really good. Tip is an amazing writer. Killer is phenomenal, right? But in the room with me, you can't fuck with me. And that's just, that's, that's all I have in this world, is that in the moment, in that space and time, if you share the space with me as an MC, you're gonna shine, you're gonna have great lines, you might even have like a oh moment, but you're not going to fuck with me. I'm 46 years old and I still, am pretty sure nobody can fuck with me. Now some people will have bigger moments, some people will have a larger record, some people will sell more records and all of that, but lyrically, you can't fuck with me. Now, Murder was different because the whole point of Murder was for two albums, UGK has a sound, right? We have a very particular, very slow, very easygoing sound. It's built around a lot of blues influence and R&B influence. And when it got to the third album, I was like, Pimp, I can't keep doing these slow-ass records. I need an up-tempo record so niggas can know that they can't fuck with me, right? I need something to be able to show people that I am the best lyricist in the world, not just in Houston, in Texas, or in America. I don't care where motherfuckers picking up pen and paper and writing rhymes, nobody can fuck with me. Again, this will be the ongoing theme for Bun B, yeah. that nobody can fuck with me. And so Murder was the one was like, okay, B, we got the record, we're gonna go. And so I'm like, cool, and I'm excited about it, and we go out, and I get really drunk and fucked up. And so I come to the studio the next day, and I am done, I am like wasted. So while they're tracking out the beat, they're like, we're gonna do Murder today. I say, okay, I go to sleep. I lay down, literally get under the, the board in the studio, and I go to sleep. And then they wake me up, and it's like, okay, it's time to, it's time to rap. And Riding Dirty is the first rap album recorded in Pro Tools. A lot of people don't know that. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, Pro Tools as a concept was really only used to cut radio commercials. Okay. It wasn't used as a recording process. N.O. Joe brought that to us. He was like, we got this guy, he's got this great studio, and he's recording music different. So Murder was literally my first opportunity to punch in. The term punch in means that if you're a rapper and you write a verse and you don't have the breath to say, to hit every syllable and hit every note in the verse, you have the option of them recording you up to a certain point, then they can stop that, you can get your breath and get ready, and then they can insert you in that point, but to the listener, you have no idea that this record has been recorded in different pieces and parts. So I had literally the first opportunity over every other MC to punch in, and I refused to, because for me, if I say a record on my album, I need to be able to recreate that record on stage. If I'm gonna write a verse and perform a verse, when I get on stage, I need to be able to say that verse on stage. Now, UGK was very unique because we came up in the age of video, but again, my record company didn't really wanna shoot a lot of videos with us, and our budgets were terrible. Like, we would get like 50 grand for three videos. This is in the 90s when motherfuckers had four or $500,000 they were fucking you out of videos. the video money, right? Your manager was like saying it costs 50K and yeah, then taking 35 for himself. Right. And then so Riding Dirty is probably the first hip-hop album to go gold with no music. There are absolutely no music videos for Riding Dirty. Because at this point, we started to understand contracts and everything. And so we were like, we don't want none of that shit. 
We don't want videos. We don't want promotion. We don't want marketing because we're already deep in the red. So the more of that shit you charge to my account, the deeper in the red I'm going to be. So we didn't do any music videos for Riding Dirty. And we, we looked back and regretted that. And Pip always used to say, we need to go back and shoot those videos. Like, he came home from prison. This is for songs that were eight, nine, ten years old. He was like, man, that shit's still hard. We need to go back and make a Pocket Full of Stones video. We need to make a One Day video. You need a murder video, all of that shit. And he was right. We should have done it later anyway. Nobody would have gave a shit. People would have been interested in seeing that shit. I now regret that we didn't go back and do that kind of thing. Because we used to always look at Ice-T's original Gangster album. Ice-T did an album called Original Gangster and shot a video for every song on the album. Now, some of them were just him in the studio. Some of them, they were all very cheap, low budget, but he literally understood the idea of content, right? Yeah. Years before people were even thinking like that. So that's the, that's the murder and the reaction story. And they still can't fuck with me. <laughs> right, can we, can we do another audience question? Other questions? We're here. Tell us your name and where you're from. Yeah. <laughs> Next really, caller. I, I got to do that for real. <laughs> no, no, you're good. Uh, I was listening to an interview with, uh, with Hip Hop Joshua from uh, Rockefeller A&R. Yes. He was talking about um, Big Pimpin'. And when you first heard the record, you were, uh, you know, you got on it right away. But Pimp C was a little more hesitant. It kind of took a little, like, longer to get on the record. Um, can you explain that and, like, why uh, the difference between you getting on the record right away and Pimp C? kind of took his time? Well, I was, I was, once they told me that, you know, basically Jay-Z called us, and that's a different story on its own because I hung up the first time because I didn't believe it was him because how would Jay-Z get my number and call me? But he actually got my number from Chaka Zulu. And so, again, this is my point. This is my opportunity to go toe-to-toe with who I feel is the best rapper in the game. And it was, I wanted to be able to show him that he couldn't fuck with me. So I was like, cool. I'm with it. Then I get up there and it's like a girl record, right? So like Big Pimpin' essentially was supposed to be about us and girls because he was trying to make his version of a UGK record. I was like, fuck that. I'm finna, go, I'm finna go off on this song. I don't even think I talked about girls on my verse for that record. I didn't give a shit. I was just, I'm like, I'm finna rap my ass off. And so I even did like, the song was supposed to be 16s. I did like a 24, right? So... It's time to get Pimp on the record. Pimp didn't even want to go to New York and do it. I actually went to New York to Rockefeller and actually recorded the record. Pimp's concern, and this is, again, this is the brilliance of Pimp C. Like, Jay-Z is the biggest rapper in the game right now. We do this record with, with him, and people who have never heard of us before will think this is what we do, and this is who we are. And Big Pimpin was literally the antithesis, sonically and content-wise, of what we really felt we represented. And so he didn't want to do the record and have people have a misunderstanding of what UGK was about. So that was the whole reason why he initially didn't want to get on a record. That he heard the beat, and he, like as soon as they played the beat, he cut it off. This is trash, I'm not doing this. I'm like, man, this is a good record. He's like, no, these motherfuckers, they gonna get us fucked up, Pee Wee. He used to call me Pee Wee. We had different, we had internal nicknames. Mine was Pee Wee, um, which is an oxymoron, obviously. And, and so that was the whole thing. He just did not want to do the record. And then he, when he initially agreed to do it, he was like, okay, I'm going to do it, but I ain't giving him but eight bars. So that's why his verse is so short on that record. But it's literally the best eight bars anybody's ever done. Right? I don't go anywhere in the world, and people, when that song comes on, 
you can sing some of Jay-Z, you can sing the chorus or whatever. Everybody in the room sings those last eight bars. And that is basically the genius of Pimp C. I don't think people really appreciated who he was until he wasn't there anymore. Like to this day, people be like, yo, who was that singing on y'all records? That was Pimp. Pimp sang? Yes, he sang very well. Who made them, who made, who produced that? Pimp, Pimp produced that? Yes, he could produce very well. He was years ahead of his time. And I still think that his impact on Southern hip hop and hip hop uh, in general is still being underappreciated. Man. Um, I think for, somebody over here had a question. I think or, I. Are we good? Yeah. Oh, okay. Thanks. I think uh, I think we are. We are actually unfortunately out of time. Like I said, we we oh. could talk for oh, hours shit. and hours. You can ask me after this is done. Yeah. You ask what you want. Are you gonna hang out a little bit? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I gotta get a real drink. <laughs> You're never gonna live this down, yeah, Alex. Man. You're never gonna. Damn, that's your bro. new nickname now. It's old fashioned. <laughs> That hurts, bro. That hurts. I thought we were friends, but I thought we we're were cool. We're, no, we're family. Like we're always we're gonna hang out and drink and do all that shit. We just won't be sharing the same drink. I got I, now. If you tell me what you like, I will help you get the next round. Lemon drop martini all there you day. Go. Can we get a lemon drop martini in the works? But for real, um, I want to personally. I want to thank you for doing this, coming and sharing your story with us at uh, So House and taking part in our Legend Conversation series. Um, the legend term is not something that I think is thrown around lightly. I don't even know if you consider yourself a legend. I didn't ask you that, but... Um, I didn't say it, you did. Yeah, but I want to thank you for real for your con contribution to music and hip-hop. Um, and I think everyone in the room shares that sentiment. So thank you. If we could give a round of applause for Bum B. Um, and... Uh, Thank you guys all for coming. Once again, I'm, I'm Alex from Closed Sessions. We're an indie hip hop label in Chicago. We do these things at Soho House and beyond. Thank you everyone for coming. Hang out, have a drink. Thank you, Soho House. And of course, Bun B. Thank you, Alex. I enjoyed this. This interview was recorded by Soundscape Studios, Chicago, Illinois. Music provided by Boathouse. Special thanks to Soho House and Bun B. I'm your host, Alexander Fruchter. Thank you for listening.